William Kennedy is the legendary author of Ironweed, Billy Phelan's greatest game, Roscoe, Legs, the list goes on. He's done this thing called the Albany Cycle. He's a very sharp and spry and well-dressed man at 83. Unfortunately, due to a variety of unexpected social circumstances, this lengthy, incredible one-hour conversation was recorded in four different rooms. Now, don't worry, the discussion still makes sense, it maintains a narrative continuity, you won't get lost, but there will be a few strange explanations along the way. So, anyway, you have been warned. Enjoy! Okay, so I am here with the one and the only William Kennedy, who is most recently the author of Chongo's Beads and Two-Tone Shoes. Bill, it's a pleasure to have you on the program. How are you doing? Well, I'm, uh, I'm doing uh, extremely well. I can't complain about anything. Good. Well, that's, 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 a, that's a start. Um, I wanted to, first of all, start off with the fact that this novel, for me at least, strikes a lot of resonances with the present day. I think of the harrowing torture scene near the end of the book, which to my mind recalled, say, Guantanamo Bay and waterboarding. Um, I think also of the civil unrest that's in that second part, which recalled the 2008 Gris riots. There's another bill that comes to mind, William Gibson, a novelist who started off writing science fiction dystopias, and as he has advanced in his career, he has set his novels closer to the present day. And he has said, the future has already arrived, it's just unevenly distributed. And so I'm wondering if in dwelling upon history, as you have with the Albany cycle, if there's anything to that, does any descent on your part into the past have to start or be initiated by sort of dwelling on the present, just as a sort of general way to start off here? I don't believe that's the way I work. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't think... Uh, I mean, I'm, there may be writers who do that. Yeah. I, I, I'm sure so many kinds of writers, but um, obviously we're writing about the present time in whatever we do, and uh, it's not a uh, uh, it's not that we're just focusing on history. And I, I mean, all our work is hist historical novels. Yeah, uh, and. Um, the, um, I mean, take Ironweed, for yeah. instance. Um, when I, I wrote that, uh, fully immersed in the 1930s, when I finally got around to writing it, um, this was a time of the homeless. The word hadn't even begun uh, in the 30s. And there were people on the street, but they were bums or winos or, or vagrants or tramps or whatever it was. And uh, um, But the homeless word hadn't been coined, and yet Ironweed fit in perfectly at the time of the, 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 the great homelessness of uh, during the Reagan era. And I, uh, I think that writers are, are uh, in a certain sense, uh, without knowing what they're doing, yeah. <laughs> because I'm, all, I'm convinced that most writers don't know what they're doing, yeah. uh, that they are um, uh, prophetic yeah. in certain ways. Uh, uh, what's his name? Um, Bernard Malamud, when, when he was um, 
I interviewed him a couple of times when I was a young writer trying to uh, learn about writing from writers. And uh, I, uh, he, he talked about when he was writing The Fixer mm -hmm. and how he just invented these things that uh, his hero, Jakob Bach, was uh, doing and, and that they, they coincided with what was happening in the contemporary uh, Russia. And, yeah. and, and it, it, uh, uh, it was a, uh, uh, a strange thing for him to yeah. think that he had done this. And, uh, but, and, and it's, it's the same with me. But, but, but also I think that what would, we're reacting always in our, you know, in our imaginations uh, to, uh, to the very present tense that we're living in and uh, it, it conditions everything we imagine. And uh, this, uh, this whole business of uh, the torture being uh, uh, akin to uh, the waterboarding in um, Guantanamo or the, the torture in uh, Iraq uh, and the whole culture of torture. That, but this was this is a tradition. You yeah. know, it's not. It's I am working out of history. History just happens to be continuing in the same vile way uh, yeah. that it that it always has. And it's sort of like the hard rules that Margaret Atwood set down for writing The Handmaid's Tale. She never wrote about anything in that book that hadn't already happened. Um, I'm wondering. To what degree have you been prescient of present events by dwelling in the past with either Chango or Roscoe in particular as well, which has all sorts of wondrous ma machinations? <laughs> well, Roscoe is, uh, I, I, took, I would say probably that, that book took me 40 years to write. Yeah. <clears throat> 40 years of living through the, the uh, and writing about politics in Albany and uh, understanding the and the inner workings of that political machine, which was none such. Yeah. Uh, there was, there never has been, and I doubt there ever will be anything equivalent to it. In uh, 90 years and still counting, you know, <laughs> in power. And uh, but it's it's no longer the same machine, but it's a continuation. Yeah. That, but when it was in full blossom, uh, I, you know, I, I didn't understand it. It's, uh, and um, I was I was observing how the did everything on the surface, but how it worked behind the scenes was was uh, was all very mysterious to me. Yeah. And uh, and I I felt that uh, as a writer I I, uh, I I was outraged by all the the machinations as you put it the uh, the, the wild crazy stealing of elections and uh, everything the the. Uh, the kickbacks on everything that happened in the city, the, the way they manipulated money, and and yet they, they didn't manipulate it for uh, you know lavish life or anything like that. It was it was to perpetuate the power more than anything else. I mean, a few of them got fat rich, but uh, but it was a it was a uh, when I when I was writing about it as a journalist. Uh, I was uh, taking the, the high road, and uh, you know I was against the machine in, in all my principles, and uh, I, I, I admired many of the people involved in it. But at the same time, it was it was not something that you you couldn't fight against. You had to, yeah. and uh, so when when I when I began writing novels, I looked at this object in, in history and I said you know if I keep this attitude of, uh, 
this higher morality. Uh, I'm, I'm not going to understand what's going on here. Yeah. So I started um, digging in behind the scenes and getting to know people who were running the, the machine. And I got to know everybody, yeah. you know, including the fi finally the boss uh, who himself, who never talked to anybody. And he eventually talked to me. Uh, I mean, he had broken out and talked a little bit to a lot of people. Yeah. But then I called him up and, you know, I was the enemy from the newspapers, yeah. you know. But he, he said, sure, come on over. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I went over and spent three or four hours with him and then called him on the phone whenever I wanted to after that. And I saw the mayor. The mayor was my enemy. He would leave the room when I was, uh, you know, I would come in to cover a story. But um, after a while, he asked me to write his biography. Yeah. <laughs> and so I went over and got to know him very well. And uh, he's a fantastic character. And uh, so, you know, the writer is a, is not a, uh, he's got to be a, a serious reporter on the, on the, um, on what, what's actually uh, taking place behind the, the facade of uh, the life we're living. And, and uh, it's a, uh, it's a, uh, it's a, to me the, uh, uh, the task is to, uh, uh, not, not to expect to be prophetic or anything like that. I, you know, I, I, I'm, hard, I'm the least and prophetic. That's right but I think if we understand what's, what's going on as well as we do, we'll, we'll figure out how, how it works and, and uh, that will be uh, in, indicative of what's going to happen next. Yeah. Four decades to get the lay of the land of the Albany machine. I, I'm wondering how many years or what you had to do to coax people to talk with you. Did you have to work on these people for many years before you, hey, I'm no longer the journalist, I'm also the novelist now. Yeah, well, that's it. You know, I, I, was, I was writing uh, a book called Oh, Albany. I, yeah. uh, I was not uh, in a position anymore. Let's see, it was, I, I was no longer on the newspaper, yeah. for one thing. And I had published a couple of novels, and uh, uh, Legs and uh, The Ink Truck and, and uh, Billy Phelan. The mayor particularly liked Billy Phelan, yes. and, uh, and that's why he asked me to write his biography. And so I, um, I was in the process of writing Ironweed at that time, but uh, those were the years when I was beginning to uh, put together this history of Albany, uh, which became Old Albany. It was a compilation of uh, my coverage over the various years, uh, 20 years that I was covering Albany from the 50s on, on through the 70s. And I, I was still covering it, and I was rewriting all those pieces, these yeah. old pieces I had done on neighborhoods and ethnic groups and such things. And it was a, uh, it was a, um, uh, a long labor. Uh, the, the, um, uh, the work of it, this is driving me crazy trying to, okay. to hear the noise and everything that's you going wanna, on. You want to try... Uh, I think we should try to find something. Okay, one minute, no problem. I just wanted to, where, where we were, uh, that I was going. I, mean, I lost my train of thought. Uh, um, it, look, it seems to have stopped. Do you want to risk yeah, it? Or it's not the noise so much. It's the people coming and going. Okay. I don't know if we have... Is this the only room they said? And so Mr. Kennedy and I fled the room, eluding the loud vacuum cleaner and the onrush of people, finding two chairs in the adjacent hall. Well, okay, so... Well, one of the things that happened was uh, uh, I, I went down to see a fellow named Charlie Ryan. Uh, I'm sorry, uh, Jimmy Ryan. No, no, I beg your pardon, Charlie Ryan. <laughs> it's important to make the distinction. Charlie Ryan was, uh, was one of the... Uh, uh, 
the secondary figures uh, in, in, the, in the machine uh, under Dan O'Connell, who was the, the old boss. I mean, he knew their father, the, the Ryan brothers, had a, had a father who did some favors for Dan and, and when Dan was in trouble. And so he raised these kids uh, after the father died, and, and they were very much in, on the inside of everything that happened. Uh, and um, one of the, um, uh, I went down to see Charlie, and I asked him, could I talk to him? And he said, sure, come on down. And, uh, and when I got there, there was a couple of lawyers in the ante room, and, and one of the lawyers said to me, you know, he's not going to tell you anything. He's, you know, these guys, these old, these old timers, they're never going to, they're never going to cough up the, the real information yeah. and tell you where the bodies are buried. Um, I, uh, I went in and I talked to Charlie and he talked, he told me story after story after story. And he, he told me one of, one of the great stories. I made a play out of it. <laughs> and uh, uh, it was a, uh, it was a, a, a revelation. Of, uh, what, what happens is when you get on the uh, uh, when you get down to the point where they are <laughs> the noise in this place is crazy. Yeah. When you get down to the, the point where they they want to go on the record as uh, having been an insider, uh, they want to want you to know what they've done and what. Uh, how how they did it. Uh, it's it's amazing that the revelation, uh, you know, without, they didn't incriminate, he didn't incriminate himself. I mean, he might have uh, if there was still someone around to uh, prosecute, but it, that was all dead and buried. And then after that, I went to the mayor, I went to the, I went to the old boss himself, and then all of the, the characters who were on their periphery, uh, I got them one by one by one. Yeah. I talked to one guy who was dying. He had oxygen up his nose, and uh, <laughs> and, um, and he, 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 talk, he talked to me on his porch for five hours. <laughs> uh, this, the noise is insane. Yeah, uh, you know, they decided to back him incredibly. Let's let's hold it for a minute. See sure. if he passes. So this fellow, uh, you know, and uh, uh, he told me one story after the other of the inside uh, activity that was going on, and uh, and who who did what and who and why, and it it was uh, it was a uh, 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 real revelation, and so uh, that whole business of they'll never tell you the story. Uh, you know, if you're a serious reporter, they talk to Bob Woodward all the time. You yeah. Know? <laughs> they tell him the inside story of what's going on. This is this was. Um, I I look like a benign figure. I mean, I am, <laughs> in a sense. I, you know, this uh, the the record that I make of uh, what what happened is uh, is fictional, and uh, they they uh, they feel safe, I suppose. But uh, but. I don't think they knew that exactly at the time, and they talked anyway. And it's—I'm um, a persuasive fellow. <laughs> uh, I, I've been an interviewer for a long time, and, yeah. I, and I, you know, and uh, I, I can. Good morning, gentlemen. Hey, how are you? 
This is a comedy of errors. It is. This interview. The noise is incredible. Yeah. And so, Mr. Kenley and I set off in search of secret rooms and quiet parlors devoid of strangers and vacuums and other strange noise. Alas, no dice over the course of two floors. So we beat a hasty retreat to the hotel restaurant, and thankfully, our discussion continued unabated, uninterrupted. Enjoy. If your if your uh, equipment will block out the noise sufficiently and keep... oh no that that's not an issue I'm actually more concerned if you'll be able oh, to I'm, I'm, I'm oh, okay. all right yeah, I think this is better okay good I'm not sure it's better but <laughs> we'll see we'll see who comes along I, I, next. I did have one program where I had to actually filter out like this coffee grinder that went on for twenty minutes so as I as soon as I went over to that sofa in the quiet room yeah the guy started up the <laughs> Yeah. The vacuum right next door. <laughs> anyway, so anyway, we were so talking about we like go. trying to coax people to talk with you and the guy yeah, so, who right, was right, on yeah. the five hours, yeah. So, but um, I don't know where you want to take it from here. I mean, it's a. Uh, what, what was. What, what, where were we heading with this? Uh, well, we were just kind of heading where the conversation went, but I suppose maybe we were drawing a distinction between. The journalist, who is sort of the bartender or the barista, the intellectual equivalent to that, and the novelist, who may in fact have an even greater advantage. Some novelists who were former journalists have told me that actually they'll get people to talk with them more if they say they're a novelist. I'm sure this yeah, has been the case oh, yeah. with you. Yeah. But the other the other thing was um, when the mayor, you know, he um, invited me over to talk about uh, writing a book with him, and he didn't say quite what. And, I couldn't understand it because I, I thought he had great antipathy toward me. And, yeah. But I went over and we just had this conversation and I sat there and talked to him and I took a lot of notes and, 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 and he said he wanted to, he wanted to write, wanted me to maybe, you know, interview him and, and dredge up whatever I wanted to and then and, uh, write whatever I wanted to and then he would rebut it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and I, I didn't think that was going to work, but um, I knew it was a great opportunity to talk to the mayor. Yeah. And um, so anyway, we, we, we carried on, and I turned out I did write a lot about him in this book. And uh, it was a, a kind of a biography, and a, I wrote three pieces, actually, on him. Yeah. And, and, uh, and he was... Um, he was great, you know, in the first meeting, and then, and then the second time I brought over a mic and a tape recorder, and he clamped up. I mean, he didn't <laughs> stop talking, but he didn't say anything. Yeah. You know, I mean, he was all, I mean, he was very salty in the first uh, conversation, and um, he's a very intelligent man, and very well educated, and, uh, you know, and, and smart as they come politically, and, uh, but uh, he was, and, and had a great sense of humor, but it was, uh, uh, it was boring. Yeah. The second interview. Yeah. So I, I took him out again. I took him to lunch, and uh, and he opened right up again as soon as he, there was no tape recorder on the plate. And I took you know notes, and he's safe with notes because he can say that he got it wrong. You know? Yeah. I mean, there's no proof. Yeah. Well, I actually wanted to ask you. Speaking of history. Uh, there are moments in Billy Phelan's Greatest Game and Quinn's book where you have newspaper men who are wearing hats as the 
lead fillings are falling upon this. And in the case of Billy Phelan, there's, there's actual rats falling from the ceiling. And I'm That's curious, right. did you have first-hand experience of this? No. <laughs> uh, I, this was this was at the, the newspaper that uh, I, I was working on. Yeah. But in their previous incarnation, uh-huh. which was... Only a few years before I got there. Yeah. They were on Beaver Street in the very old, old center of the city in, in the South End in the gut. And um, it was Newspaper Road. There was uh, the Albany Evening Journal was there, the Albany Argus, the, uh, the Knickerbocker News, the Knickerbocker Press, the et cetera, et cetera. And the Times Union was up, up the street a little bit. And, and then uh, they moved into new digs. But... I remember that uh, one of the reporters and the, the copy editors uh, said that you know the, the, the rats used to come down, walk the ceiling, and the, the, uh, the composing room was upstairs over over the city room, and there was always these lead filings that were coming through the cracks in the floor. Yeah. And so these guys wore their hats on the, on the around the desk and the, and the reporters wore their hats indoors. The pre-OSHA days. <laughs> you know, it, 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 it had a practical application, those hats, uh, yeah. in addition to being the style of the day. And, and the, the rats used to come down and eat the paste out of the paste pots. Yeah, which is also <laughs> immortalized in Billy Phelan. It's in Billy Phelan. Did, well, those were old stories that yeah. these guys who had grown up there had seen it. You know, one of my buddies who had, had become, uh, he'd been a reporter for 10 years or yeah. so, all during that period in, in, in Beaver Street. And, and he, was a, he was a great storyteller. And he, he told him, you know, Did you experience any first-hand journalistic squalor? Or? Journalistic squalor. <laughs> Along those lines, or perhaps other forms of squalor. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, no, uh, not, not quite like that. Hello. Uh, not quite like that. It was a... Um, the paper had uh, modernized, and uh, I mean, I was, I was there in the age of the typewriter and yeah. the clacking teletypes, and the paper would stack up uh, on the floor like uh, crazy all uh, after, at the end of the workday. Everybody threw everything on the floor, the old newspapers, all the old teletypes, and, and it, was a, it was a great mess. And there was, there was um, squalor. <laughs> um, Rotting walls. <laughs> Asbestos-laden environments. No, I'm sorry, I can't. Uh, I can't. Uh, or, or just basic. I, I remember. Uh, I knew all the guys who had gone through it, but. Yeah. Uh, but uh, well, on a similar note, it. Hunter S. Thompson, I, I have to ask this largely because the Paris Review interviewed you and cut this bit. Uh, he said of you, he refused to hire me. Called me swine, full beatnik. We go way back. But I also know that he wrote you. A quite hubristic letter. How did you two patch things up after this early exchange of invective well, that, and all that, that? That I never called him a swine or anything <laughs> like that. I mean, I, I mean, I, I, it's possible. I, I, in a letter, in later years, I, I would call. <laughs> I had called him a swine. Yeah. Uh, but that was that was his terminology. He, you, he. He, uh, I, he was trying to prop I, you I up. I would just throw it back at him or something like that. I, you know, there, there was no rancor. Yeah. Uh, at all a- after the uh, um, first exchange of letters 
almost immediately it, it was patched up. I mean, he was furious at me for rejecting him yeah. when he applied for a job. And um, uh, when you're talking about the quote there where he said... Um, he said that on Charlie Rose. On Charlie is, Rose. Yeah, yeah. But he was, he was referring to my attitude toward the, the, the rum diary. Yeah, yeah. Which was the, the novel that he was writing down in, in Puerto Rico when I got to know him. Yeah. And uh, he had just started it. And, and in later years, he sent it to me. I wish I had kept it. I, I don't know why. I, I can't find it. I don't, I don't think I have any remnants of it, and I got a lot of his stuff. But may, maybe I have some pieces of it. I don't remember. But, and I can't even remember the letter I wrote. But I, I wrote him a letter, and I told him, you know, forget about this novel. Don't, you know, you, you can't publish this. This is terrible. Yeah. And it was a big, fat novel, you yeah. know. And it, yeah. I'm, not nothing now, no, no, no. and uh, um, it was a, it was fat, and it was, you know, it was uh, logaria. Yeah. Um, and and uh, it was um, a young man's uh, ruminations and uh, discoveries of uh, uh, all of that. Um, a journalist Nunes. aspiring to be a novelist, basically. Right, right, right. Yeah. And um, and he was a smart guy, very, yeah. very smart guy. And uh, and but that novel just didn't work. What what was published? The book that's published is like one third of, yeah. the, of the the text of the old book, and it's not doesn't have any of that and those flaws that I can see. I I just started to read it again the other day. I tried to see the movie three times and I can't. <laughs> oh, really? Uh, well, uh, they, I'm in the academy and uh, I get these uh, screeners yeah. from the uh, academy. So, uh, but it didn't work. Yeah. <laughs> the screener didn't work, and uh, it, it says wrong disc. Oh no! <laughs> so uh, I have to get another one. Yeah. And um, but I, I'm I'm anxious to see it. I I, I think that it's um, full of. Uh, um, um, probably libelous uh, accusations against yeah. the star or yeah. the newspaper down there they, they, what do you and, think? And, and the people who ran it what do you, what do you think that was expected from oh, yeah. her you know yeah. what, what do you think distinguishes your approach being a journalist going into a novelist from Hunter's approach I mean was he just not serious enough and you were more devoted was it a matter of being well read what was it exactly that sort of distinguished the two of you well, I was a serious journalist. Yeah. I mean, I, uh, he, he, he presumed to be. Yeah. That's, that was the basis for our uh, initial argument yeah. uh, about that bronze plaque. Uh, you know about that? You know, the bronze plaque on, on, the, on the side of the New York Times, it was a, it's a quote from Joseph Pulitzer. Yeah. Uh, when that building was uh, the, the home to the, the, the New York world, the great newspaper the Pulitzer ran in New York. And anyway, um, he, he revered that, you know, it's this uh, high-minded uh, attitude toward the news and no fear of favor, whatever, and, uh, you know, work for the, uh, against the, the thieves and the whatever. I, I'm, I'm, I'm absolutely uh, forgotten what Pulitzer said. Yeah. I, I remember its tone. And I could find it in this whole episode is uh, 
uh, summed up in uh, the introduction to Hunter, Hunter's book, uh, The Proud Highway, his yeah. first collection of letters. He asked me to write the introduction to that, and I told the whole story of how he applied for the job and didn't get it and so on. But, I mean, his, his attitude toward journalism was high-minded, but when he started to practice it, uh, in, in a, a year or so later, uh, roaming around South America, he started writing. He was winging it, you know. Yeah. Uh, he did, he wasn't interested in uh, just the facts, man. He was uh, he was a, uh, a, a half a fiction writer as uh, in those days, roaming around and whatever uh, caught his fancy or his imagination, he would he would write it. Yeah, and. I mean, it came to a point where he uh, went to the um, uh, the Kentucky Derby, and that was the one that really put him on the map. The Kentucky Derby is decadent and depraved, and yeah. it ran in uh, Scanlon's Monthly, I think. And um, it was a... Uh, it had nothing to do with reporting. It was... <laughs> he was making it up, and it was, it was fiction. Yeah. And... I, there may have been some basis in all that, that happens in the story for it, for, but he, he just invents the dialogue that yeah. goes on between the various people and follows his own chart and, and, and reacts uh, as, a, as a novelist yeah. uh, and, and then presents it as, uh, as journalism. This is what um, Loathing, Loathing in Las Vegas was presumably journalism, but it's fiction. I yeah. mean, that's a novel. Yeah. And... Uh, uh, he, he claimed in retrospect that he had notes to prove every element in, yeah. the, in, in that novel, but he didn't. <laughs> I mean, it's obvious. All, all the hallucinations, I mean, whatever his hallucinations were, they were hallucinations, and they're, and they're, and they're his and they're internal, and this is not... He's, who's to say who's hallucinating when he's writing what, what, what he's writing? It's... Uh, the... the the sum and substance of Thompson was that he started off as a journalist and he became this wild, crazy, gonzo journalist, which was half a fiction uh, writer's achievement. And, and he was always, in the early days, thinking about the novel and, and new forms of the novel. Yeah. And he created one. And, uh, I, you know, I... I Novels are very valuable in, in their wisdom and their insights and their reporting and their, and their historical uh, penetration of, uh, of the world that, uh, that they're centering on. And he was, he was uh, famously uh, talented in all those realms to, to achieve those things. And, and, and he did. And it's just... But... In the, in the end, I mean, he comes off as a career journalist yeah. and, um, and a, a singular one. Yeah. There was nobody like him, and, uh, and there never will be. And there are a lot of people tried. It's, uh, he's, he's inimitable. And, and, uh, but he, when he started out, he had all the, the, uh, the baggage that goes with with the aspiring novelist and he always made the distinction that I started out to be a, a journalist and then turned into a novelist and he started out to be a novelist yeah. and turned into a journalist and um, and I, I 
That's true enough. Yeah. Uh, and um, my journalism very rarely uh, uh, was, could be challenged. Uh, never, never could be challenged uh, as a work of fiction. Yeah. I never did anything like that. Yeah. I found ways to enliven the text uh, with language, as so did Hunter. But Hunter also reimagined history and reimagined daily life uh, when he invented his, um, his world. Yeah. To, to go to your work, uh, The Ink Truck, I wanted to ask you about this, your, your first published novel. This is interesting because unlike the topographical precision that we see in the Albany cycle, the details of Albany and the ink truck are not nearly that precise. They're more abstract. And I'm curious why that sense of place only emerged in the subsequent novels to the ink truck. Well, because when I wrote that novel, I was, I was um, reacting to... Um, my resistance to traditional realism and naturalism. Yeah. You know, I had been there with uh, Steinbeck and Dreiser and James T. Farrell and so on, and, and Hemingway also uh, was the great realist, not the naturalist, but the great realist and, and, um, and the great reporter. And I was... I was in a in a, a different mode. I was um, immersed in Joyce at that time, yeah. uh, and uh, very much aware of uh, you know Ulysses and, uh, and the wildness of uh, the invention that pervades that novel. And the I was I was thinking of uh, the surrealists. Yeah. Uh, I was in the grip of uh, Buñuel, a movie maker. Yeah. I love his work. And I, uh, also a wonderful late bloomer, too. <laughs> <laughs> and Fellini. Yeah. And, you know, I, I thought that Eight and a Half was one of the great movies ever made. Yeah. Maybe the greatest to me, and I'm not sure I don't think that still. But, uh, because what a satirical. Uh, well, I love the... I, so much of Fellini I do yeah. love, but... But eight and a half was yeah. because it, 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 it was in one guy's head, and uh, and it it um, it just went in and out of reality, and that's what I wanted to do. I, I I used to say that 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 novel was always six inches off the ground. Yeah. <laughs> and um, so I you know levitating was was important, and and, and it, I wasn't really uh, interested in grounding myself in uh, the, the, the squalor of, <laughs> of, of that situation. That was pretty squalid yeah. time uh, when we were in the guild room and uh, during that strike. There was a strike that I went through and, and it was the inspiration for it. Yeah. And, um, but that, that, that book is a, sort of a an excursion to comedy and uh, and surreal surreal comedy. Yeah. And that's, I mean, it 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 presumes to be serious and certain stages of its uh, 
intensity. Yeah. But uh, basically, it's a it's a wild, crazy, surreal story. Yeah. But when you have the character of Albany begin to appear in your work, suddenly there's, I think, more of a kitchen sink approach. You have very hardcore realism. You have hallucinations, surrealism. You have all sorts of things, almost a kitchen sink approach. And I'm curious if the increasing complexity of your books, uh, where this comes from, is this arise out of your very meticulous and fastidious research? Does it arise from wanting to reinvent the form of the novel, to not repeat yourself? Does it arise from having established a Yoknapatafa-like universe of characters? What of this? Well, I all the above. Yeah. Uh, everything you said was... I was always trying to do something that I hadn't done before, yeah. or that, that I couldn't attach to anybody in particular, you know. You can't imitate Joyce, you can't imitate Hemingway. Uh, I had I tried and I did, you know, uh, all uh, all the way along in yeah. various failed enterprises, and um, I knew that it's a, it's a dead end. And uh, um, I was trying for something new. I don't know. With legs, I uh, I was inundated with research. I, I I I spent two years under the microfilm machine. I I. Uh, you know, we no longer have to do that, you know, just punch in Google, you know. <laughs> but now it's, it's, it's amazing. But in those days, um, I would spend days, in, in, all day, half the week, inside the library, you know, not only just in, in the microfilm, but all the books of the age, all the, um, the uh, magazines, uh, the, uh, I went to New York and got the morgues of all the major newspapers, the yeah. Times, the, the New York Post, uh, the Daily News, which was fantastic, and, uh, and so on. And, and I researched all of the, everything there was to find on and Legs Diamond serendipitously, yeah. you know. And, and, uh, and then I also kept turning. I'm probably interviewed 300 people. I, I don't know how many, uh, you know, so cops and... Uh, gangsters, uh, retired gangsters, yeah. uh, with prostate trouble, and uh, and uh, I, um, I I really stultified myself at a certain stage of that novel, and I I had to stop and take uh, account of what was really going on, yeah. and I had to uh, I had to read. Uh, reinvent the, the the book, you know. You wrote it seven times, I understand. Uh, yeah, seven, I guess the seventh was the final time. Yeah, yeah I wrote it six times. Or was it six years and eight times? <laughs> the, and anyway, the, the eighth time yeah. was a cut. It was a, the, I had finished it, but it was too fat. And so I, I cut uh, 70, 80 pages or something. I don't remember what I cut. But there were, I, don't, I don't miss them. Whatever I cut, it was all right. But it was. Um, but I started from scratch, really. After six drafts, uh, uh, I, I went. I went back and, and spent three months just designing the book all over again, and, and 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 designing the history of every character all over again, and and then putting a totally new perspective on it because I, it, I had. Um, 
I had too much material, and, and, and there was no way to, to stop it from coming to me except to just close it off and say, I don't want to, I'm not going to read another newspaper, I'm not going to crack another book, I'm going to write the story now. I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm done with the research. And, of course, that never really happens, but, you know, you have to go back and check. But that's what I did. And, and that's how I finished the book, and uh, and that's how it came out all right, I guess. Well, this leads me to ask, I mean, if you are so saturated in research and information, what do you do to, I suppose, invent something or offer an informed speculation as to what oh. happened? Or do you, do you is this something that just will cause you to become just unacceptable in terms of the pursuit that, of fiction? That's just the task. Yeah, the, yeah. the job, the writer's job is to reinvent uh, uh, the... Uh, uh, from the given material, whatever it is. Yeah. Uh, it's the, the challenge is that if you keep resupplying yourself with new material all the time, you know, your imagination doesn't get a chance to uh, let anything settle. Yeah. And you're constantly in, 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 in a state of anxiety and torture uh, about understanding the, the, the breadth of it all and but when when you let your research settle when you you know when you begin to think and stay in front of the typewriter all day I mean I used to work 16 hour days and and I wouldn't start writing until the 12th or 13th hour yeah. and then I'd write two or three four pages one day I wrote 17 pages I mean I that was very rare for me, but uh, it was, and I think it was in Lakes when I was, when I did it. Maybe it was Billy Fallon. I'm not sure, but it was, I think it was like. And 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 what what happens is when when it does settle, when you give yourself a breather uh, and you're you're just dwelling on the story that you're telling and the meaning of it, uh, you're also I, I always am looking for some new way to present it, and um, and that's what the imagination does. Yeah. And uh, you just make way for your imagination. That's that's the, uh, the the secret, I think, of what I came to. Uh, that it was uh, I was torturing it, and uh, and once I let it alone, I was able to <laughs> make sense out of it. Yeah. And, and reinvent. And Legs has a kind of um, odd, quirky resistance to realism in it. And it is, there's these things that are all through the novel, like the, the ending. The book was going to be structured on the, the Tibetan Book of the Dead. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, I, I love that idea. And... It, it that's got in the way. I, the book was also going to become a, a movie, uh, a movie in process, and I was going to follow the cameraman and um, the, the, the director uh, as, as they moved uh, around following Legs Diamond through his life. But that just became a gimmick, and I, I abandoned it fairly quickly. Uh, it would, but, but it was a, it was an effort not to be realistic and an effort to be in some way surreal, in some way new, and I think that a certain kind of newness permeates that book, and, and newness to me for uh, 
how to write a novel yeah. in the mid-20th century. But the process of saturation and research, despite technological advancement, despite the internet and all these archives opening up, has not necessarily increased your speed. So uh, no, I, I, I'm wondering that. if there are any trade-offs between the old analog microphone machine days you were talking about and the present digital days that uh, well, offer you almost anything. The, the, Maybe that's the danger. <laughs> the, pro the problem is, I, I used to think that I learned how to write a novel when I finished Legs, you know. I, yeah. I really know now. It took me six years and I really learned. And, and it seemed I did, you know. Billy was two years and uh, Ironweed was eight months. And uh, um, I, Ironweed had an antecedent before the, uh, yeah. you know, the uh, in, in journalism, and, and I turned it into a novella, and then it, it never sold, so I just left it. And but that was the the wino uh, life, and that that wasn't Ironweed entirely by any means. But that was um, uh, the basis for the book in, in a latter day. And um, with the new book. Took me ten years, or yeah. almost, and uh, it 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 was uh, it was difficult because I'd been away from the civil rights movement and my, what I wrote about it and for so long, and it was overly familiar to me, and I, I I resisted it for years writing about it because I didn't know how to make anything new out of it, and I uh, then. When I got into the Cuban element, the book, um, I was going to write a nonfiction book on Cuba. Yes. And I saturated myself with journalism on Cuba, and I said, I don't want to write any more journalism on Cuba. I'm going to, if I can write that, uh, that book, I'm going to write it as a novel. And so I did start that. And then I had also started, in, at least in my mind, uh, the, the civil rights novel. Uh, this, the novel about the, the radical priest. I mean, all, all these characters who float around that novel, I, they were uh, important people to me, and I, I, I always wanted to use them, and I had to find a new way to do it, and I, 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 maybe I did, I don't know. It was new to me. Yeah. But it took me a long time to, A, rediscover them, B, find the history of Cuba that I needed in order to understand and be able to write about a few days or a few weeks down there uh, in 57, and, uh, and then put that together. They, they, they didn't normally go together, this, the old Cuba-Albany story, yeah, hardly. Um, but it turns out I found infinite connections to Albany and, and New York and Saratoga and uh, Batista's kids wound up uh, in, in school in Albany. I, that was just, uh, uh, I found out much later in the game when I was, after I'd written much of the book. I mean, in, 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 this, in the same school that I wanted to use. Yeah. So the, uh, school from nuns, uh, where were the, so many uh, uh, young uh, Latin American female children were sent uh, from all over Mexico, Argentina, whatever. You know, it's a great, uh, great school. Anyway, um, the uh, 
the book uh, became a uh, a major problem for me. I, you know, I had a lot of uh, blank time, a lot, of, a lot of days that I didn't write anything. And, yeah. uh, and but it kept moving. After a while, I'd get back and write something, and then and, and, and finally I found a way to put the puzzle together. You know. You had mentioned Joyce earlier, and I feel compelled to bring up a very interesting observation that the Philly Inquirer's Frank Wilson made. The second part of Chango is very similar to the Circe chapter in Ulysses. Uh, and uh, this is interesting because someone also made that comparison of the opening part of Ironweed to, to Circe. I think he has a point because Albany's the gut it does have some similarity to, or, or serve as a parallel to Night Town. And I'm, and I'm wondering about this also with, you know, George Quinn's failing memory. Uh, was uh, Cersei, that chapter, was, was this uh, a, a guide at, at all? Or, Not or, really, yeah. no, because, I, you know, obviously I'd read it and yeah. more than once, uh, but um, the gut was where all the activity that I'm talking about yeah. uh, in the book really truly happened. That was the center of um, wino life. It was the center of the nightlife. Uh, the nightclubs were all there. Uh, it was the center of this black fermentation that was going on in the society that suddenly the black neighborhoods had money from the government, the federal government. And the, this community action program and people were supposedly pulling themselves up by their own bootstraps and forming community groups to you know protest the lack of attention to their streets and um, uh, the, the, the whole uh, political pressures that were put to bear on them and, and, and I was I was living in that particular area uh, for Three years at least, and so it was natural that 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 I would use it. And there's where some of the riots came too. Yeah. You know, not all altogether. I mean, the riots took place right up in the main main stem of the city in uh, North Pearl Street, which is the the main shopping district and theater district. And so, but there were riots right there. And, did Stokely Carmichael actually yeah. show up in Albany? Oh yes, he did. I mean, yeah. All of those yeah. guys. Yeah. I, um, Malcolm X came in yeah. one day and sat in the. Um, in the, uh, uh, the balcony of the Senate. And uh, I went up and interviewed him, talked to him. I'm, I don't know what I said to him. You know, not much that was of any substance. <laughs> but but uh, he said a few things, and I put it in the paper. Um, uh, but there were always these events where the black leadership of the country whatever form it was taking, whether it was Black Power or the NAA or Martin Luther King's uh, uh, successors. Um, uh, Stokely was around. Uh, uh, Eldridge Cleaver was around. Uh, How well did you know it, these figures? Pardon? How well did you know these guys? Did you meet them I, at all? Or? I never met either either one of those guys. I never met Cleaver or, or Stokely. Uh, you know, they were they would come and speak at a college, or and and somebody would say, "You've got to come down and meet the brothers." Yeah. And then they'd take them down to the headquarters, or the brothers would go up and meet Stokely, yeah. up yeah. wherever they were. And but they were they had their own 
local fame, and um, and they were well uh, chronicled, and uh, so it was uh, it was a they were a known um, element in in the society in Albany that people who were hip to uh, the movement would always want to be in touch with. So. Um, that was uh, um, that was a phenomenon of the brothers. They they, they attracted so many uh, in terms of what major names and uh, and they got incredible attention in the press. Yeah. In terms of what happened in New York versus what happened in Albany to the Black Power movement, I mean, one of the regrets and one of the curious questions that came in my mind after reading it's like oh man it's only locked in 1968 and I became increasingly curious and regrettably didn't have the time before talking with you about you know to find out what happened did you consider extending that fateful day to beyond uh, the uh, day that Robert Kennedy was shown well or? I I condensed a lot of history you know I uh, telescoped it yeah uh, for the sake of telling a story and yeah. it was manageable and uh, I put the riots uh, in, in a somewhat different year, yeah. but there were still uh, the same riots on the same streets. Um, the uh, overlapping of uh, the neighborhood group movement with the brothers was a very different set of movements. I mean, the, the neighborhood group movement was all matriarchal and and the brothers were all male. Uh, they don't, don't no female members and. Uh, uh, and, and, and it was a very different time for black culture because the, the black voice of the male had not really been heard in such strident tones before, ever, in Albany and probably in, in the country. I mean, and, I mean, there's always been strong preaching by the black clergy and black NAA leaders and so on, but when this black power movement came along and they they, they started taking on the politicians yeah. and running against them for office, yes. I mean this the politicians took notice. Yeah. <laughs> and what would and hope? They, they did their best to destroy the brothers, yeah. and yeah. they did. They destroyed them eventually. They were they didn't kill them necessarily, but <laughs> there, some of them. One of them died. And one of them, another one, the fire at the end, uh, that really happened to one of my friends. And yeah. he, he almost died. Wow. And, uh, and there, was, um, there was a white girl with him, and he, she almost died. And, uh, and it was a deliberately set fire. Well, it's interesting because you have Matt Dougherty in this. Uh, he's a reverend, and he also, you, you're very careful to write in the book that the political machine, what he does on behalf of the poor was completely unprecedented and he also is an interesting revolutionary figure and I'm, oh, yes. and I'm wondering if he sprang out of the black power research no, we were no, doing no. or he, just he to was, obligate, yeah. He was, um, he was, uh, um, that was like, that was a real character, he was yeah. a friend of mine and, uh, and he, uh, all of that, all of what happens in the, in the novel, um, well, not all. But uh, much of what happens, what happens to him, that he's silenced, 
that was actual. And, um, and this came out of my school where I was, and, and I had access to him and interviewed him in, at great length. And when he was silenced, I had a, a like a two-hour interview with my tape recorder, you know, yeah. with him. And I wrote it. I wrote it, and the newspaper was afraid to publish it because wow. they they felt they'd be considered anti-Catholic, and the the, the machine would uh, the political machine would start uh, telling advertisers to pull their ads. Yeah. Because yeah. this paper is anti-Catholic, and uh, and that would have worked. Yeah. So they, I had to publish it in the National Catholic Reporter, and published in the Midwest or something, in Southwest somewhere. I can't remember now, but but um, it was a, it was a national paper, and the, the interview came out. But, yeah. But I, you know, the main news breaks they, they we did publish, and, and they didn't they weren't afraid of that. Yeah. But, when they silenced them and when the campus protests and all that sort of thing, but but um, the, the um, that novel can go on and on and on. You yeah. know, I, it's just you don't even know what happens to the two people who were burned. You yeah. Know? Yeah. It ends before they uh, that are diagnosed. And, yeah. Um, so much could happen with Quinn. I mean, what's going to happen with that money? Yeah. <laughs> well, also with Quinn, I, I was curious because not just in name, but although it is Daniel Quinn in both Quinn's book and Chango's Beads, but his quest to become a reporter and his singular passion for one woman, Renata, mimics very much the singular passion that the previous Quinn had for Maude. And, I, and I'm wondering if this was either a remark upon historical parallels or remark upon certain characteristics that are within a family line. Uh, what, what of it? Well, it's a, it, it, the parallels, uh, you don't know that he did not, yeah, maybe you do know, uh, the first Quinn did not marry Maud. He married, yeah. he married a Cuban woman. That's, yeah. And um, the... Um, Separation of Maud is another novel. I never yeah. finished that novel either. You know, <laughs> that that I always felt I should write the rest of that story, and maybe I will someday. In a sense, this book was the continuation of the old Quinn's book, and yeah. and that it carries Quinn to Cuba instead of I was going to take him to the Fenian invasion <laughs> of Canada with those wild-headed Fenians after the Civil War when they yeah. tried to take Canada back from England and. Uh, Invaded Ireland. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, the, the, I didn't do that. And um, but the um, the Quinn parallel was, I think that was deliberate on my part in a certain sense. I mean, I can't. I I hadn't thought about it actually about the relationship of the women. Yeah. But the the parallels to his. Um, Odyssey, young Quinn going to, down to see Fidel the way the old Quinn went down to see Cispedes. Um, uh, that, that, that was a deliberate, willful, overt event in history that, you know, a young man is following in his grandfather's footsteps and emulating a, a, a significant achievement. So, I, I, um, I suppose I, I patterned the, the romance in a certain way on that too, but 
in, in the Shango, I mean, Quinn is still with um, with Renata. And of course, at the end of Quinn's book, Quinn is with Maud. Yeah. <laughs> and that's how it ends. What but, if, oh, sorry. But I do know that in, a, in subsequent years, that was 1864. Yeah. And by the time he, by 1870 comes along, he, when he goes to Cuba, uh, he's no longer with Maud. Yeah, yeah. They break. What of this journey away from Albany that we see very much in Chango and we also see in Very Old Bones, uh, do you ever get sick of writing about Albany? No, or, no, no, no. <laughs> yeah. I don't get sick of it. Yeah. I, I'm, um, I'm just um, drawn to uh, certain elements that demand attention and, and they're geographically remote. And Cuba is the most remote. I mean, the very old bones uh, went to Germany. Uh, uh, Flaming Corsage went to New York. Uh, and the theater and, uh, of New York in that time. And um, I always go to Saratoga. <laughs> uh, but I, I, I don't know why. It's just uh, the, the way events leap up and take me by the throat and yeah. uh, say, write me. And I, I do. Yeah. <laughs> if, they, if they squeeze me tight enough. And um, I, uh, I'm looking around now for uh, something to take me over, and I haven't really found it yet. I, I do have a play I'm going to work on, which yeah. is basically a, a departure from uh, a section of very old bones, yeah. and uh, it'll be a strange play. And 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 uh, I don't. That's my next project, and that's as far as I can go so far. I, I'm. I'm trying. <laughs> I'm looking around. But, well, uh, what uh, you mentioned that you know the fates of most of these characters, and you're pretty. You've, you've, you've thought most of it out. I would imagine, like years ago. I mean, what or do you know no, everything that no, happened? No, no. Sometimes I yeah. don't. I don't. I don't really know what happened to those people who were burned. Yeah, yeah. I'm. I'm not sure uh, whether they survive or not. They. Yeah. They may. They may not. One of them may not. I don't. I, um, I'll, uh, I'll think about it. I, I don't think I'll come back to this element of uh, this, my, my story, my Albany story. Uh, I think that there's, there's going to be another, another time and another place in this city or wherever. Uh, I don't know. I just don't. I think that it's not. It's not in the cards for me to carry on that story right now. I, I, I never rule out anything. Playwriting, screenwriting. Um, your novels often have these one to two page chunks where there is this bullet-like dialogue, like one-line dialogue. Ba 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 ba. And I'm curious how this tends to come about in your work. I mean, does dialogue 
flow more naturally for you? The description? Do these moments happen fast? How stylized? How worked is this? I'm curious. I always believed in dialogue uh, as a as a great tool for telling the story and defining the characters, the way they speak. Um, and uh, I think that um, it it was a something I used even in journalism yeah. uh, whenever I could quote people uh, in stories I did. Uh.